So they say that when the Buddha taught, he would always start with a talk on generosity. And I'm sure a lot of people just sat through it, trying to wait for the real teachings. You know, like waiting for the liberation, the freedom, and he just kept talking about how you need to be generous. So I wanted to take some time to talk about the parami of generosity tonight. Just thinking about my life and what it means to me. And I try to put myself in the Buddhist position, you know. I do that often, actually. Where, you know, he was talking about generosity, and this was from a cat that didn't own anything. It's hard to get our heads around that the dude had a bowl, a robe, and maybe a pillow. Definitely not memory form. Right? So this cat doesn't have anything to gain from people being generous except for the joy of watching them be generous. Right? The liberation that comes with generosity. He described generosity as a staircase to heaven in the path of liberation. That it would liberate you. That you literally could not get liberated without generosity. It was that important to the path. That's why he would start with it. So it's the first of this long list of beautiful qualities, of these liberated qualities that we've been practicing. Liberated qualities of an awakened mind, they say. But we can see generosity all around us. If we kind of attune our eyes to it, we can see it. It's in so many of our moments, even here today. The path begins there because of the joy that flows freely from the awakened heart, as they say. Pure, unhindered delight. I'm down for that. Have you been experiencing that a lot? Not so much. Ish. I take it. So, I want to talk about all the different kinds of generosity because there's so many different flavors of it, right? We see it a lot. Maybe it's the kind of generosity that we express in relationships or internally. Even the way we hold the container here. Maybe it's manifest at work or with strangers, just those random acts of generosity. Maybe service work, which I know is a meaningful thing to many people in this room. And then it gets into the more nuanced kind of generosity that comes around forgiveness, or giving people the benefit of the doubt. 
I had a moment of uh, generosity recently. I was driving. I have a beautiful lowrider, and I live in Oakland. And so I was driving my sweetie, and it's got a nice bench seat, you know. So she was tucked up under my arm, and I was in my car in, in my neighborhood, and it was a beautiful day. And I just kind of rolled through a stop sign. <laughs> and uh, there was a cat coming the other way, but it didn't matter because he wasn't turning, or, or so his blinker didn't indicate. And at the last minute, he turned, and I almost hit him, and we were about six inches uh, car to car from each other, and he jumped out. He was a big cat. And uh, I'm a small cat, but I'm very confident. <laughs> and so, you know, he started yelling, and, uh, and I, I, I met his, his energy. And uh, my sweetie just kind of reached over and touched my knee. She said, sweetie, he's just scared. And I immediately realized that I was too. That all that was happening is that we were arguing about who was more afraid. And I apologized and we drove away smiling, you know. It was a sweet moment of realization of what generosity looks like in this moment. When I think about generosity, uh, I think about sometimes when you reach out to somebody for help, you're giving them a chance to be generous, right? And I like that one a lot. I like to ask for help. And I like when people ask me for help. It makes me feel close to them, you know? And so I was kind of just sitting today thinking about all of these different manifestations of how generosity is in our lives. And uh, it's hard to see sometimes. The Dalai Lama's got this beautiful story where, you know, he's trucking through this rural village and he's got his crew, you know, his own lowrider, you know. And uh, he says, you know, this older woman comes running out and you could tell she's not dressed in fine garments or anything. It's a poor village. But she has this beautiful sari. And she wants to give it to him. And, you know, the Dalai Lama kind of takes it from her graciously and, and keeps moving. And there's a reporter next to him. And he's just looking at him, scratching his head. He's just like, Why would you take her prized possession? What are you going to do with it? You don't need a sorry. He said, uh, you're missing the point. I don't need it, but she needed to give it. You know? That he was, it would be very dismissive of him to not accept this gift. Almost selfish of him to not accept it. That in a way, for her to give this to him made her a part of something very important to her. 
So it's not always what it looks like from the outside, all of these acts of generosity that we're involved in here. She was able to feel the joy and the open-heartedness of giving. That's a, a beautiful gift. His words continue to ring. My religion is kindness, right? And so here we are practicing kindness. And a lot of times it doesn't feel like that. At least in my sits it doesn't, you know? It feels like I'm up against everything beside kindness. Everything in the way of kindness. You know, we go from a long sit where we can't wait for the bell to ring. We're trying to make it ring with our minds. <laughs> Jack, Jack doesn't seem receptive to our energy, you know. You know, and, and then he finally rings the bell and we go out and as soon as we get out there, we say, you know, can't wait for the walking to end, you know. <laughs> Does it sound familiar? So I want to kind of frame this loving awareness that these teachers have been talking about in through the eyes of generosity, of how how kind, how generous, how gentle are we being in this practice? Because it's a really connected to the intention. That's what's really at the heart of generosity, is the intention. This sweet quality of heart that wants to be generous, that wants to give, that wants to share. I remember uh, I was doing, this some time ago, I was doing a, a month long at Spirit Rock, actually. And, uh, it was pouring rain. And I, my $5 umbrella broke like the second day. And I still had a long time. And so I'm in this stormy place. I'm in the country. I'm not, I'm not a real country kind of character. And so I'm a bit uncomfortable. You know, there's mud. My shoes are getting muddy. And, uh, a lot like other centers, they have a, a box full of umbrellas. And let's just say some of them were less effective than others. <laughs> they had a sticker on them that said, Property of Spirit Rock. And, uh, you know, I, I come from a different kind of neighborhood. So I didn't feel like I was stealing it, but I was going to commandeer it for a while. And, uh, you know, I had found an, a really nice one. It was like a golf umbrella, like two or three of me could have fit under it, you know. And I took the sticker off it, because what I started to notice was that, um, you know, that people would end the sit, and all of us that didn't have umbrellas would start to do that fast, slow walk. You know, there's a sense of urgency, you know what I mean? Because we didn't want to get a busted umbrella because, you know, you got to walk around. You know, you see it in the child line sometimes. People are fast, slow walk. 
So here I am in the purpose of full disclosure. The median age of the month long is probably about 60 years old. So I had to jump on a lot of these people. <laughs> but I took the sticker off and, um, you know, I, I had it. It was mine now, for the time being. And I would reapply the sticker when I lo no longer needed it, you know. And um, the rain continued, and I started noticing the other yogis, you know, these beautiful older people. And I see them starting to really get wet, you know what I mean? And I'm just, I'm dry, but I'm kind of unhappy, you know? There's that whole thing that I was just like, oh, man, I got to get this up. You know, so there was a kind of a, a letting go or a renunciation. I mean, I fought that for a couple more days. <laughs> it's a gradual awakening. But I had to, you know, give up this charade, you know. And so I, I, I put the sticker back on and I put it in the box. And it was fair game again, you know. And I felt so, so good about that, you know, like, I felt so generous when I would see, you know, I would see the fast, slow walkers get it and they would grab it, you know, and, you know, the little old lady, she'd be dry, you know, and I, I began a practice of taking the most busted umbrella I could find, you know, like the really, the bottom, even if I was the first one at the box, I'd take the busted one because of the feelings of generosity it gave me toward the other yogis, you know. It was very sweet. It was a great act of generosity for somebody like me, you know. So when we give in this way, there's a whole new sense of who I was, a freedom, you know. There was a certain kind of freedom that wasn't locked up in my survival mentality that I got to get mine and, you know, whatever I have to do in order to do that. I started feeling this, this letting go of this constricted notion of myself. And, uh, and what I had to offer. Because we can offer all kinds of stuff. What I found is that if I shared something, it was way more valuable than the item itself. The thing itself wasn't of as much value as the feelings of sharing it. So this practice uh, reduces our kind of a, attachment, weakens our cravings. If anything, we have a craving to share more. You know, I know there's always this constricted smaller self in me that says, what's in it for me and how am I going to get mine, you know? Lots of conditioning. Those hard times, you know, when there didn't seem to be enough. I found that that voice is lying to me. That it's a really 
it's a dubious source, the, the mind, that's so worried about getting theirs. They say that um, all the paramis share one characteristic in particular, and that's is for the benefit of others, all the others, paramis. Isn't that amazing? So here we are practicing, trying to bring it home, and it's of great benefit to the people around us. I don't know what it's like in there for you, but I know that um, when I came to practice, there was a lot more of a poverty mind state. And not just financially, I just meant, I just felt broken in so many ways. These small acts that I'm talking about really contradict a lifetime of feeling really uh, unworthy. So let's take it to the practice, right? We're sitting here, and the critical mind can be so relentless, you know, in its criticisms. We find what we're looking for, and if you know, biology is any kind of map, you can see that we've always had to be on the lookout for ourselves to survive. This is, you know, thousands and thousands of years old. This is not our fault. So, it's no wonder that when we come to practice, all we see are the obstacles. Because that's what we're used to looking for, is what's wrong. There was an incredible shift in my practice as I started noticing how much space there was in between thoughts and not just the, the thoughts themselves. Even if you look at this room, it looks like there's a lot of people in this room, but there's literally 50 times as much space in this room than there are people inhabiting it. Right? There's a lot of space in here, but our eyes kind of go toward form, not space. So in this practice, we're training ourselves, and we see the power of what we focus on. So the more we look for generosity, the more we find it. And think about it. How many times have you been in the child line, and you leave a little bit of cookies for the next yogi? Or even the way people walk into this room. They don't want to disturb other people's practice. I mean, to be straight up, how many people in here are trying to swallow quietly? I mean, that, that's generosity. That's crazy. And, it, and it's generosity. Right? We're really, really trying to keep a container together. It's beautiful. That's beautiful. I used to think, you know, I used to beat myself up and like, oh, I don't know why I have so much saliva when I got to keep it. <laughs> I mean, there's days on retreat I wouldn't drink any water because I was not contributing to the swallowing and my neighbors are going to have a coup d'etat. They're going to throw me out of here, you know, because I'm swallowing so loud, you know. So this generosity 
about giving or relinquishing something. Fundamentally, about letting go and non-attachment, what the Buddha talked about a lot. It's connected to gratitude when we feel like there's enough, right? Internally. Gratitude is... You know, the Buddha made a lot of lists. And I would put that on top five killer feelings. Gratitude. Generosity, too. But we have to let ourselves explore these mind states to really give ourselves to it so that we know it inside not the concept of it not the idea of it like i want to be a nice person but what does it feel like when we're actually being that you know a lot of us can get caught up and we don't want to be self-indulgent you know so we kind of keep an arm's length from these kind of sweeter feelings but the Buddha gave much different directions. He talked about the three kinds of joy that come with generosity. The intent, then the act itself, and then the recollection. He's like, look, if you're feeling stuck, man, recollect all the good stuff you've done, bro. You've done a lot of good stuff, man. I'm paraphrasing, but you know that. <laughs> A friend of mine, we would uh, fly a lot. I would work with him and we'd fly almost every week. And he would just stand at the luggage belt and write everybody's luggage so it was easier for people to pick up. Just a very simple act. You know, and I would see, you know, young, you know, younger kids carrying their luggage, older people, all kinds of people. And it was just easier because he was there. It was just a very anonymous thing that he'd just stand there and, and do. Generosity is working on its opposite, this greed, one of the, the three poisons the Buddha talked about. He called it a dark state that corrupts the natural transparency of consciousness. Hmm. He said the practice of giving, in a sense, is the very foundation or the seed of spiritual development. This feeling, this manifestation of wanting to give. Very beautiful. Now, if I think about my life and, um, you know, the people in my life, see, uh, there's a bunch of ways that we can be generous with them, or not, right? We can be slow to compliment the people in our lives, or slow for praise, you know? We could, uh, every moment, especially with our families, right? They can uh, get the worst of us. But even us being here is a great gift to all the people in our lives. Right? Like us unplugging and coming here and sitting almost in a fire. And that fire looks different for all of us, right? It could be the fire of boredom or restlessness or just the critical mind, whatever it is, right? But we, we go home a bit more, I would venture to say sane. 
I think it's a beautiful gift coming here. So every moment we have this opportunity of how we want to do it, right? How do we want to be in this moment? It's a, another opportunity to give, to be generous, to, uh, to see clearly. The Buddha was so smart about how he set up the monasteries. He set them up so that the relationship to the village and the practitioners in that village would have to support the monasteries. That they couldn't grow their own food and just go up in the mountain and stay by themselves. They couldn't have their own money or their own medicine. They would have to have this relationship, this reciprocity with the communities that they actually lived in. He knew that it would be both, it would be good for both parties if they were involved in this, uh, what Emerson called the divine circle of divine charity. This endless circle of divine charity. He said that even if you took your bowl and you rinsed it and threw it in a puddle and you thought to yourself, I hope the beings in that puddle benefit from this, that it will be a great benefit. So it's not in the gift, but really the intention is much more important than the actual gift. Even this idea of some of the monks... Uh, where I spent some time at, they would say, may you reach nirvana in this lifetime. What a beautiful sentiment to say to another being. You know, that we can have that wish for each other, that deep well wish, and be generous about it. We can give encouragement, time, energy, right? There's so many things we can give. Even giving thanks is a, a beautiful way to express generosity. So we see that there's really no limit to the ways that we can be generous. The biggest one for me is this inner experience. When I came to practice, they invited me to be, they welcomed all of me, right? The parts that I was proud of, the parts I was struggling with, the parts I was ashamed of. It was a radical invitation to wholeness. I had tried so hard to be good. I mean, I ate vegetables and wore white and did all kinds of crazy shit. <laughs> it was horrible. <laughs> it was. It really, like, it was just... And I noticed pretty quickly that I was withholding love from myself. That there was a way that I was trying to 
extort myself into being a better person. You know what I mean? I was like, I'm going to just withhold love until you act right. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It's wild, right? When has that strategy ever worked? For anybody. Like, my whole family would be enlightened if that was true. If that, if that led to liberation. It's just not an effective strategy. We can't hate ourselves into becoming better people. It's just not the right mechanism. The words of Nisar Dadatta Maharaj, he says, all you need is already within you. Only you must approach yourself with reverence and love. Self-condemnation and self-distrust are grievous errors. Your constant flight from pain and search for pleasure is a sign of love that you bear for yourself. All I plead with you is this. Make love of yourself perfect. Deny yourself nothing. Give yourself infinity and eternity and discover that you do not need them, for you are beyond. The sentence in there, the real crux of it for me, was a small distinction of make love of ourselves perfect, not ourselves perfect. What becomes perfected is the way we relate to ourselves. And when I look back on my life, the moments that I was struggling the most is when I needed love the most from myself. And that's when I was kind of the hardest on myself as well. When I felt the most unlovable, really. So what if we cared about ourselves the way we care about our loved ones? What would that be like? If we used them as the bar, because we know how to love the people in our lives. I got a little godson, and he's, you know, he's the light of my life. When he messes up, I pull him up on my lap, I hold him, I rub his back. He's my man, you know? He doesn't do anything. It's not that he deserves it or doesn't deserve it or he's worthy of it or he acts right. We all got love coming. Now, when I think about it, how do I love the people in my lives when they're grouchy or sensitive or tired? when they get up tight. I mean, that's where we find out what kind of lovers we are. When you're loving somebody when they're lovable, that's just common sense. That's, that's, not, that's not no great feat. What makes you a great lover is when we can love people when it's hard to love. When they expand your heart of what you think is capable, what is capable of, how much love is this heart capable of holding. And we get to practice that all day here because we don't get to pick what arises. 
Right? We're sitting here. And all kinds of stuff floats through. And the practice, the instructions are very simple. <laughs> Love what is. And it's like, okay, okay. You know, and I got all of these excuses. Well, but not that, uh, you know. No, no, love that too, love that too, love that too, you know. And we keep including more and more of our experience so that none of our experience has to be rejected. Care and attention is are the things of love. We can't love and ignore something. Right? That's not possible. Because then we wouldn't have a direct experience of it. We would just have the concept that I should be loving. Another should. The Buddha spoke about attachment to things and the mind becoming obsessed with the stain of stinginess. And sometimes... uh, when I'd be around the monks, they would be talking about behavior. And in the end, sometimes they would just say, but is it beautiful? You know? Was it a beautiful act? You know, whether it was in the, the rules or not in the rules, was it beautiful? Like, that is actually a value. I thought that was really nice. So what does it mean to step outside of this me-centric, me-against-the-world, this separateness that we know is a delusion. And step into the truth of this interconnectedness. I've seen uh, a moment of this kind of transformation once. My father was a really uh, tough guy. Been in and out of prison since he was 11. A really intense guy uh, who was perpetuating the cycle of violence he was exposed to. Mostly uh, on my family. I watched him uh, go through his life and I actively uh, wished him ill will and harm. He took things very personally. And respect was really important to him. He, uh, he got clean in 1987 and uh, later that year came and found me I was about 110 pounds I was 20 years old and I was uh, living in a crack house I didn't have a lot of words for my father this man that I hated But he introduced me to uh, to recovery and to service work. And uh, 
we healed some of our wounds and started going into the very prisons that he had me sneaking heroin into when I was a kid. My sister, I got four sisters, and one of my, my little sister, she hooked up with this dude, and uh, he's HIV positive. And I was freaking out, because I had protected my sisters as best uh, I could my whole life. He was in and out of prison, so he wasn't around. So I was freaking out, and I didn't really know what to do. I didn't know whether to threaten this guy or send some people to go see him. And my father pulled me aside and he says, I know what you're thinking. And I want to ask you a couple questions. And he said, how many people do we know with HIV? It was many people. This was the late 80s. And he said, and you want them to be happy, right? Of course. And then he, he told me, he said, look, this guy is going to die. And we're going to be there. Because he's a part of our life now. And when we're standing over him, looking down, all we're going to have is a question in our hearts of whether we treated him like a human being or not. This wasn't an act of generosity. This was the real thing. This was transformation of a guy who did uh, so much harm and in a moment of unconditional love for another suffering being he taught me about generosity so when I sit and I think about what's possible in terms of how can I be more loving in this moment? How can I approach myself with kindness? How can I forgive the fact that it's so hard for me to forgive? You know? That's how it manifests a lot. Because it's not always like I want it. This is where the practice really comes in, is when the a heart turns to stone. We are all trying so hard. This is when we really need to kind of turn and say, yes, this too. This belongs too. There's two things. There's what's loved and what's longing to be loved. So what is it that is calling for our attention as we sit here with these critical minds and these noisy neighbors and, you know, everything else? It wouldn't be real generosity if it was easy, you know? It's where it's more the, the, the difficult. That's when it really transforms us.
Hafiz's words, he says, it happens all the time in heaven. And someday it will happen again on earth. That men and women who are married and men and men who are lovers and women and women who give each other light often will get down on their knees and while so tenderly holding their lover's hand with tears in their eyes will sincerely speak saying my dear how can I be more loving to you? How can I be more kind? This is what we're doing here. And we're holding ourselves as the beloved. How can I be more kind? And we see, as we sit together, where it needs to be applied the most. Right? Where is it needed the most? We can look at the Buddha's enlightenment like a like a wave or an explosion that's cutting through time and space, 2,600 years. And we're still feeling the effects of it today. And every moment of generosity, every hand putting food in that bowl is like the Buddha's hand. Because we're awakened. We join him in that expression of freedom, in that moment of generosity. With every act of generosity, we're giving each other the gift of fearlessness, which is the true Dharma. Your time and attention are your greatest gifts, and I hope I haven't wasted any of them. And we'll just sit for a moment. Enjoy your walking. Enjoy this beautiful night in the desert. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.